Hello and welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And each week we bring you an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. And today we have a very special guest. Bill Ferris is with us, a folklorist, documentarian, founding director of the Center for Southern Studies at, uh, at Ole Miss and many, many other things. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. You have there's so many things we could talk about with you, of course. But today, your your emphasis and and part of why you're in Mississippi is to help promote your your latest project, which is called Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians Documented by William Ferris. And this is a new box set that's put out by the very uh, unique company Dust to Digital from Atlanta. Um, why don't you just tell folks a little bit about uh, this project because it's a it's a unique kind of product. Uh, than just a book or a CD. Yeah, it's sort of a new generation of how you publish work, which is multimedia. I have sound recordings, photographs, and films I've done over the years with musicians and storytellers, quilt makers. And these are all pulled together in this box set, which is a beautifully designed cloth box that includes a book illustrated with transcriptions of all of the performances, uh, three CDs, one of blues, another of gospel, and the third of storytelling, and a DVD of my documentary films. And at the very bottom of the box is a piece of paper with a code that allows you to download all of those materials onto any digital device that you might have. This must be, you know, like I think technology has kind of finally caught up with you because you've you've done all ever since the beginning you've done photography, audio recording, film, you've written and so this is the first time to kind of all bring them together under one roof. So technology has finally caught up with Bill Ferris. Well, it's true. Alan Lomax, my hero, who recorded so many recordings of musicians all over the region and world, had a vision for what he called a global jukebox, which would allow you to share music all over the world. Well. Alan's dream is now possible because of the internet and the digital worlds, which I find so exciting because now on the internet I can download all my field recordings, my photographs, my films, and anyone else can. So it moves your work from a dusty shelf in an office into the home of everyone who might be interested. How did this, uh, the project come up? Dust to Digital has been around for probably about a decade or more now, and how did, yes. how did you get connected with them? Well, I followed their work. They're run by a young couple, Lance and April Ledbetter in Atlanta, who really are the next generation of where the collecting and sharing of music is headed. And they approached me about going through my archive, which is quite large, and gathering what they felt would be a sampler of all my recordings and films and photographs. And I said, that would be an honor. So I think neither they nor I realized how long it would take. It took over a decade. 
and we had several generations of teams who worked in it, listening and editing and pulling it all together. And then it was designed uh, in this beautiful box, which has been nominated for two Grammy Awards for February. We'll be at that event. But it all came together, and the thing has astonished us in its uh, impact. It sold out within the first three weeks. Oh, wonderful. And so then they reordered another larger shipment, and they also, in the interim, released a vinyl LP and a DVD of more films. So they really have uh, basically in that box set and these other materials, the the crown jewels of my life as a folklorist and the work I've done here in Mississippi. I think it, it, they mentioned somewhere in the in the description in the initial uh, kind of overview by Scott Beretta that there's mm-hmm. oh, is it over a hundred and fifty thousand items in your collection or some it's or, yeah it's, it's really large it's about five tons of stuff and growing but amazingly it's all available online it's all been processed and digitized in the southern folklife collection at the university of north carolina and they're on the cutting edge of digitizing and sharing archives in the same way that the leadbetters at dust to digital are on the cutting edge of producing packages that touch all generations from older people like me who are not savvy about technology to people who are young and really know how to make a computer spin. You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB. Our guest today is Bill Ferris and we're talking about his latest project, Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians Documented by William Ferris. It's a box set uh, available through uh, the company Dust to Digital in Atlanta, Georgia. A lot of people who know your work over the years, you, you know, you've published many books and, and uh, uh, documentary films and the uh, records, but there is a lot of stuff still here that is kind of, while maybe available for the first time, is the first time kind of coming out in a project form. Mm-hmm. Like, And especially interesting is kind of showing your roots through your work before you even, while you were still in your, the very beginnings of your work as a documentarian mm-hmm. in your family and in your community. Right. I think all of us in many ways keep coming back home in what we do to our roots. And Mississippi gives you especially deep roots of community and family. And I grew up on a farm. My family were the only white family there. There were a number of black families. And that was an isolated rural world 16 miles southeast of Vicksburg in Warren County. And as a child, at the age of four or five, a lady named Mary Gordon would take me to Rose Hill Church on the first Sunday of each month. And I learned the hymns that were part of the service. And as I grew older, I realized that there were no hymnals in that church. It was all sung from memory. And I began to think about what would happen to the music once the families were no longer there. And so I began to record the services, to photograph and later film them 
as a way of preserving for future generations the music that I loved as part of that ceremony. And that led to a career in folklore where I really drove up and down Highway 61 and tried to document and preserve the voices of Mississippi, which really defined me as a person. And that's what this box is all about. It starts at the very beginning, and there are also voices of Eudora Welty, Alice Walker, Robert Penn Warren, Alex Haley, many of the people that I was privileged to know I would record and in some cases film, and there's a sampler of all of that in this box set. One of the things that I found interesting in terms of just your background is talking about your, your own family, your, your, your parents and your, and your grandfather, I believe, that extended older generation were all college educated and were very interested in, 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 in ideas and, and, and that, and that kind of that stew of that influence in terms of mm-hmm. your, your view of the world. And, and, and so I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about that kind of your family's background and kind of knowledge and, and interest in pursuing knowledge. Well, my family on both sides, my mother and father, had deep roots in Mississippi that went back to the 19th century. And my grandfather, Eugene Ferris, was the first agronomist in Mississippi. And he worked directing agricultural experiment stations in Picayune and Holly Springs and ended up retiring to a farm that my father was the working part of. He ran it, and that was a blessing to all of us to have a childhood in a place that was so beautiful and so intensely uh, important. And I went to a little country school at the age of five, and each teacher taught two grades. We had about five or six people in each grade. And in the sixth grade, Gladys Barfield was the teacher. And at the end of the sixth grade, when we were to leave and go to another school, she said, how many of you children are going to go to college? And no one raised their hand. And I realized I was the only student whose parents had graduated from college. And I certainly didn't raise my hand. And she pointed her finger at me. And she said, Billy Ferris, you are going to college. Your parents will make you go. And I didn't want to leave my friends. And I said, I ain't going to no college. I ain't going to no college. And she said, yes, you will. Your parents will make you. And thankfully, Mrs. Barfield was right. But those were worlds I didn't want to leave. And studying folklore and recording the voices of people, black and white, men and women, were my way of staying anchored in those worlds while I went on to what we think of as, in quotes, higher education. And folklore allows you to have a foot in both camps. Uh, to do what I do today, working and seeing my work appreciated. I often tell my students an African proverb that when an old woman or man dies, a library burns to the ground. 
And those were my libraries. Those were my teachers, in addition to classroom teachers, people whom I met on the back roads of Mississippi, taught me in ways that were profound. And today, thanks to this box set, others understand and appreciate their voices as well. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Bill Ferris, and we're talking about his latest project, Voices of Mississippi. It's a box set featuring uh, a multimedia box set featuring films and music and a, a, a deluxe book edition as well. Um, another element that I saw in the in kind of your biographical uh, history, you know, I've heard many people talk about, oh, Bill Ferris is from Vicksburg. Oh, he's from Vicksburg. But I, just to quote you say, Vicksburg was not my world. It was kind of a foreign place for you as a, as, as a farm boy. And I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about that, that Vicksburg that you remember. Well, in... My childhood, uh, growing up on the farm, that was the world that I knew, the fields, the forests, uh, the country roads really were not a part of Vicksburg. Vicksburg, when I first went there uh, as a student in the seventh grade, I stayed with my grandmother because it was too far in to commute, and it was like going to Paris. I mean, the diversity of people and the worlds there, an urban culture that I had never known. And I felt very much an outsider. And But gradually I appreciated. There were Lebanese, Jewish, Irish, Chinese, Italian students in the class. And that was a whole new world for a kid coming out of rural Warren County. The two worlds were quite separate. And so I began to go to dances with the Red Tops, which were an amazing big band that were playing as rock and roll was starting in the uh, late 50s. And this band would play in Vicksburg, and it was just an incredibly wonderful new experience, the diversity of food. My father would play poker with his friend Shufi Habib, and when they played at Shufi's house, his mother would uh, serve them kibbe and uh, stuffed grape leaves. So you had a rich, diverse world in Vicksburg, a river town, that was totally different from anything that I had known as a child in rural Warren County. You talk about kind of the, uh, the and you see it in the, in, in, the, in the book portion of it, kind of the early, earliest steps of your work as a documentarian. And I was hoping, it mentions that you and your brother put a dark room in the house when you were, I guess, still in high school. Talk about kind of the beginnings of uh, getting a, a camera and how you yeah. learned those initial steps? Well, I realized that I wanted to somehow document and preserve a culture, not in those words, but I just felt that this music was so beautiful, first in Rose Hill Church. So I was able to get a little tape recorder and began in the 50s to do the recordings that were my first recordings. And I also felt I needed to photograph and capture pictures of the musicians and singers. 
But I didn't have a camera. I had an, a, a small camera uh, when I was 12 that I used, little Kodak box camera. But uh, a 35 millimeter camera was beyond my imagination. But my brother had learned photography and he used a 35 millimeter camera and he helped me build a dark room that we used together. It was basically a closet with water in it. And for the first time, I realized that you could process black and white film and develop it and then print actual prints from those negatives, which was like uh, magic. On a white piece of paper, you would see the face begin to appear. So I began to do early photographs that to me were so powerful because they brought alive visually the people that I was recording. And then uh, as a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, I would return from Mississippi with tape recordings and photographs that I would put on the wall and talk about my work. And people appreciated it, but I felt I'm really not able to convey the power of the church service or the juke joint or the auction barn of the auctioneer I was working with. I need to film this, but no one there who was trained in film was interested or willing to come with me. So my cousin who was in the Army at his PX got at a discount a Super 8 camera. And I began to do three-minute rolls of film with wild sound on a tape recorder and pieced together the earliest films that I made. And so I would show those, and it clearly had a powerful effect on the audience. So I began to do recordings, photographs, and films from the early 60s on. And as I was able to get grants and more support, the camera was more sophisticated and I eventually was able to have a crew that would help me with lighting and sound and editing. But from the very beginning was drawn to multimedia documentation. And I tell my students, today you have no excuse not to do that because with your phone, you can photograph, record, and film with better quality than I could do with all the equipment I was able to use. You're listening to the Arts Hour on NPB. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Bill Ferris. We're talking about his new box set from Dust to Digital. It's called Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians, documented by William Ferris. So in terms of the filmmaking, you were pretty much self-taught. I mean, did you ever yes. have any kind of instruction, or was it just in a kind of instinctual thing that you did? It was all from the heart. I never had any instruction in tape recording, photography, or film. But like swimming, you learn from doing it. You jump in the water, and I figured out how to focus, how to deal with light in black and white, and later with color. And with film, the whole zoom and pan and 
tight and medium and long shots, uh, you instinctively would photograph and film the worlds that you thought were most important and then edit those in the films into a single film or with photographs and recordings into records and books. And you began to try to see how you could share that material through publications and recordings and films. And finally today with the Dust to Digital box set, you can put everything together in one place. And that to me is so very exciting. One area in the in the kind of biographical essay, you know, I'd heard for you know in your biography about you going to Ireland for the mm -hmm. year, but this kind of fleshed out a little more about the importance that, that played in kind of your your future direction. I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about your time there. Yes, Ireland has always been important in my life. One of my great heroes was James Joyce, and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man spoke to me. His character, Stephen Dedalus, said that he fled the nets of family, religion, and country. And I felt I was an expatriate from the South. And to those three things, I would add race, uh, because race has been such uh, a curse on the American South. We still wrestle with it. And trying to build bridges across those worlds was a central part of my mission as a folklorist, and still is. Uh, but in Ireland, I was playing the guitar and writing on Joyce and uh, living the life of a graduate student who had not been able to find a, a niche in the English departments that I'd worked in because I wanted to study folk tales and blues and gospel as literature and to study them in an academic way. And over breakfast one day, I was in this bed and breakfast having breakfast with the chairman of English at Ohio State, whose name was Francis Utley. And he was in Ireland working on a book on Irish folk tales. And I told him that I was so frustrated because English was not open to what I wanted to do. And he smiled and he said, you should be in folklore. And I said, what is that? And he explained and I ended up the next year in the folklore program at the University of Pennsylvania. And I went in to see my advisor, Kenneth Goldstein, when I arrived with a box of my tape recordings and photographs, and I put it on the table in his office, and I said, Dr. Goldstein, is this the kind of thing I could study here? And he smiled at me, and he said, that, my boy, will be your dissertation. So I kept coming back to Mississippi and recording and going deeper and deeper into the worlds that eventually I wrote my dissertation on. And allowed me to teach, first at Jackson State, then at Yale, then at the University of Mississippi, then as chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and finally now at the University of North Carolina, where I've taught 
since 2002, and I just retired this past summer. I love that story of you meeting Goldstein because it's like you were already a folklorist. You probably had more field work experience than all your compatriots, and you just finally had found found your spot. You'd been you'd been secretly you didn't know you were a folklorist, and you'd already been one. Well, I found myself in the late '60s at the University of Pennsylvania in a class with students who knew as much as the faculty, and they included my dear friend Henry Glassy, one of the great folklorists of our time, Archie Green, who later founded the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, and I thought to myself, if these are the students I'm with, I am totally out of my class because they are so far down the road I'll never catch up. But it was a very interesting time to be at the University of Pennsylvania with people who would go on to make extraordinary contributions. Welcome back for the last segment of the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Bill Ferris, and we're talking about his new box set, Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians, documented by William Ferris on the Dust to Digital label. And you had mentioned earlier uh, the Grammy nominations just came out uh, as we're recording in the last week or two, and yes. uh, the box set has got two nominations. That's right. It's nominated for the Best Historic album and also for the best liner notes in the uh, blues area that's and the gospel area the two essays by my friend david evans have been nominated for a grammy and you've had many uh awards and and uh things but i would assume this is this your first grammy nomination yes it is right. i'm in over my head uh, I always looked at these as things that the Beatles were associated with and the Rolling Stones, but this reflects the broadening of their recognition of all kinds of music, from roots music or in folk music to the pop stars like Taylor Swift. I was curious about, so... Um Kind of your your earliest documentation obviously happens within your community and kind of stretching out into kind of southwest Mississippi. But the work that became your dissertation, you kind of move up into the Delta, and, and that's when you first met uh, Son Thomas and some of those other Delta blues men. Why did you, why did you make that, that journey to the Delta? Well, I think it was both the power of the blues, of Delta blues, and also the politics of the time. I was a, involved with civil rights protests and trying to build bridges in uh, the segregated South between black and white worlds in the 60s. And to me, it was a political act to record black musicians and storytellers who would otherwise be forgotten, left out of history, to provide a voice to the voiceless. And often when I was recording, musicians and storytellers would say to me, now, if I tell you this, do you promise to put it out and let people know what it was like to be down here in Mississippi? And I said, I will. I'm going to put a book together and you will be in it. And that's what my life has been. The, the book, Give My Poor Heart Ease, basically are stories about the musicians' lives in their voice. 
And I've tried to give that voice, to get out of the way and just in films and books to let people tell their own story. Uh, and Voices of Mississippi does just that. And that makes me, and one of the things that Scott Beretta, who wrote the kind of overview essay, talked about was the, the approachability of your, of your text. Um, a lot of your, um, the people coming out of those uh, folklore programs of your time, of your generation, uh, some of the kind of the great theoreticians were kind of coming up and the, mm -hmm. and the language was becoming more and more, um, oh, you know, not for the general reader. It, mm -hmm. was, it was more for kind of advancing the science, you know, as it were. And I was, and so could you talk a little bit about your, like your approach in, in, in the way that you wrote? Yes, I always felt that I wanted the people about whom I wrote to be able to read and appreciate the book. So when I published my first book, Blues from the Delta, I sent it down to musicians in Leland, Mississippi, like James' son, Ford Thomas, and he would write me. He couldn't write. His daughter would write for him and say, send me some more books. I loaned them to my friends, and they haven't returned them. And to me, that was the highest compliment that the people who were featured in the books and their neighbors loved what was in there and saw it as their voice. And kind of related, uh, David Evans kind of talks about, you know, that you were one of, you know, kind of a group of people that were studying. Mm -hmm. he, he was in relatively the same time period. Uh, but your approach was always much wider mm -hmm. in that a, a lot of very dedicated blues scholars, they wanted to know the, the pedigree of the artist and they wanted to connect and make the community the school of Bentonia or the school of these places. Mm -hmm. And that you, that you consciously kind of always had a much broader approach in terms of how you documented and presented the, the artists. Well, I think partly as a Mississippian, I was following my heart in the way that Eudora Welty followed her heart as a photographer and later as a writer. And I've always been interested in language and the spoken word is a counterpart of the written word. And I have taught all my life a course on Southern literature and the oral tradition. And you cannot understand William Faulkner, Richard Wright, Tennessee Williams, Eudora Welty, Jasmine Ward, without understanding these folk voices because they are interconnected in powerful ways. And one of the things I love most about the box set is the book, which includes transcriptions of every song and story. And to me, that is literature in a powerful new way. When you read the language and you have accurate transcriptions of what these voices are singing and saying, it really is an inspiration in a literary sense as well as in a, a musical sense. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Bill Ferris. We're talking about his latest project, Voices of Mississippi, Artists and Musicians, documented by William Ferris. It's a box set by the folks <laughs> Dust to Digital out of Atlanta, Georgia. 
you mentioned the literature, so on, especially in the storytelling CD, it is you know a lot of the um, blues musicians and other people telling stories, but you've also combined it with Barry Hanna and other other writers. So you kind of always maintained your connection to your kind of interest in, in English literature as well. You never kind of left that yes. behind either as well. It's true, and the box set, to its credit, gives equal kind of voice to both the oral traditions of musicians and artists and the writers who crafted the English language in such a powerful way in their literature. And there's one section in here where Allen Ginsberg, the beat poet, uh, is talking with James Sunford Thomas about the blues and how they admire the blues and each of them sings and talks and plays together. And it's a beautiful example of how this oral tradition intersects with a literary tradition and the voices of the folk are the inspiration for great literature. And our oldest literature is oral. Uh, written literature is recent. When we look in the, the Genesis uh, chapter of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the five narrative voices there, at the Iliad and the Odyssey, the oldest literature we have in writing was originally oral and was later written down. So when we look at folklore, we're looking at a key to our oldest literature, which was oral rather than written. Another area that I've always kind of read about and, and I've heard the records are the uh, Mississippi Folk Voices concert series that you did at the Old Capitol, which I would assume in some ways was probably some of the earliest kind of public folklore mm -hmm. presentation <clears throat> in Mississippi. And you talk a little bit about it in the, there's some, and I just was hoping you'd kind of remember a little bit about that for us as well. It seemed like a really potent time when you were teaching at Jackson State, I believe. Yes. I've always had a close connection to the State Archives and History Department. Uh, Charlotte Capers, who oversaw that, was a, a dear friend of my family. Her father, Bishop Capers, married my aunt and uncle here in Jackson. And she supported my work from the beginning. She gave me a letter of introduction, vouching for my good work, that I could show a sheriff who might pull me over and stop me. And one of her young protégés was Patty Black. And Patty heard me do a presentation uh, for Charlotte uh, when I was a graduate student at Penn in the late 60s and loved what I was doing. We became friends. And then when I taught at Jackson State, Patty approached me about bringing some of these musicians to do concerts at the State Archives. And I said I would love to do it. So that was the beginning of the Mississippi Folk Voices. And we brought in a number of groups and recorded them. The concerts were very successful. And then we produced a long-playing record album with a, uh, a book with transcriptions and narration in it that Rounder Records produced uh, in 1970 
uh, or rather 1972. So that was sort of a way of making very public the recordings that I had been doing as a folklorist in the late 60s. Um, before, so before we get away here at the end of the uh, interview, I just wanted to kind of hear about maybe some of the stuff. I think you've got a, you've, you're always got a new project. And I was just curious about what you might be working on right now. Well, my next big project will be a, a book of my black and white photographs, which are extensive. I'm also working on visual representation of my work, what's called a graphic novel, which are really comic strips, comic representation of the stories of the people with whom I worked and my own story. And the publisher of my French edition of Give My Poor Heart Ease, which is called Les Voix du Mississippi, are going to produce that using artists in France. The French love comics, and they love Southern music. And the writer who did a book called Love in Vain, Jean-Michel Dupont, is uh, producing this as we speak. And each chapter will be drawn by a different cartoonist. And it's a whole new world, a new frontier for me, in the same way that Dust to Digital's box set is. But I think it's so exciting that in many ways this is a format that reaches the young generation. And the great civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis's first two books about his career as a civil rights uh, leader have been done in cartoon and so that people, young people who've never heard of Selma, Alabama and the Edmund Pettus Bridge can see in graphic depiction the violence and the courage of civil rights workers who are part of that. So this is where I'm headed uh, with the next chapter of my work. And I, I don't want you to give anything away, but are there specific artists or people within that that you're thinking for this depiction that you're going to bring in? <clears throat> well, they have read everything I've written and digested it. And uh, Ray Lum, the mule trader, Fanny Bell Chapman, the gospel singer, James Thomas, the blues singer, all of whom are in the Dust of Digital box set, will be featured in chapters, as will I, the story of my life, and I'm putting together memories of stories about events that happened to me that they will then take and create digital representation of. Uh, I'm also talking with a black Mississippi designer who uh, is, there are two uh, friends, one of whom is Howling Wolf's cousin, Curtis Strong, and his childhood friend, uh, who is a designer artist uh, at the Hampton Institute in Virginia. And they want to do uh, graphic illustrations as well. So I'm going to put this French team together with a team 
who have deep roots here in Mississippi uh, and see what comes out of it because it's a world about which I know very little, but they know a great deal. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. I wish I had more, wish we had another couple hours to, to even just dive in. I, I encourage everyone to check out your latest project, Voices of Mississippi. It's a box set from Dust to Digital. You can find it anywhere online. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, look out for him uh, in the Grammy nominate, the Grammy Awards coming up. And uh, thank you so much again. Thank you, Larry. It's an honor to be on your program.